These are the things that I learned during the 22nd week of 2011, May 29th through June 4th. May 29th. Computer keyboards in the rest of the world apparently have a very unnecessarily large return key that the US abolished in the Windows 95 days. Time to return to a side tangent conversation from a previous episode. Remember when I ranted a bit about the nomenclature of the Enter key on Windows PCs versus Macs? Well, I think I now understand a bit more on why there's a difference in the naming. While I am still irrationally low-key annoyed that Apple insists on physically naming the key Return, contrary to the rest of the industry today, Apple having roots as a typography-focused company may be the likely reasoning. The return key traces back to the typewriter carriage return, Steve Jobs, being one who enjoyed the art of fonts and calligraphy, most likely was a stickler for adhering to the typewriter way of doing things. And I bet Apple just continues that onward to this day. Supposedly, according to Dan Strychalski, sorry if I bungled that pronunciation, IBM was apparently the one that bucked the trend of adjusting the conventions of the key in 1981 with its personal computer, quoting Dan, while everyone else marked their carriage return key return or the like, IBM, which put return on IBM Selectric typewriters and claimed that the PC keyboard was Selectric-like, called that key the enter key. Apple stuck with return, probably for that very reason. This caused a cascading effect in the industry that most followed, with Apple as a notable exception. I think Jobs never liked IBM anyway. Technically, the return and enter actions function distinctly from one another. According to Mark Heath, IBM 3270 terminals actually had separate return and enter keys. Return functioned more like the modern tab key on a form where it would move the cursor to the next field, and enter would confirm it all. Of course, times changed and the keys merged. In a lot of applications, the enter and return functions largely perform the same duties in the modern era. Apple still insists on keeping the key named return and codes Apple's Darwin-based OSs to recognize the two distinct functions should they be coded as such. All right, follow-up done. And now let's talk about the size of the key. It is true that enter or return tends to be larger outside of the US, particularly Asia. The shorter one row double wide enter key is adherent to ANSI short for American National Standards Institute. According to DeskThority.net, quote, there have been studies that shown it to be easier to hit accurately than the ISO, short for International Organization for Standardization, confusingly enough, and ANSI return keys. Personally, I have so much of a muscle memory trained on the smaller ANSI enter key, 
I'd much rather have the additional bracket and pipe slash backslash key conveniently above it, as I tend to use those a lot for coding and operational Windows operating system tasks anyway. Regarding the supposed changeover of the Enter key in 1995, I cannot quite confirm this, but I think this came as a result of the addition of the Windows key to most keyboards to accommodate for the Start Menu hotkey introduced in Windows 95. It seems around this time, a lot of keyboards started adhering to the ANSI 104 standard, which denotes a single row Enter key in its layout. So I guess that's the reason. I acknowledge that I couldn't find a lot more concrete evidence aside from that, but for now, I'll consider this the answer. May 30th. The HON staff are jerks. Time to blow off some steam, I guess. So let's talk about HON, also known as Heroes of New Earth, or HON. This was another game akin to the Warcraft 3 mod known as Defense of the Ancients, aka Dota, which also spawned League of Legends, and later Dota 2. Released in May 2010, Han was its own dedicated product, like League of Legends. However, it was not a free-to-play game until about two months after this date in 2011. The game focused on being a bit closer to the original Dota mod than League of Legends was, using harsher, more realistic graphics. Additionally, in-game nomenclature and mechanics were much closer to Dota compared to League of Legends, the latter of which would take more liberties as time went on. As with most multiplayer online battle arena style games, the community is a bit of a dumpster fire giving rise to the term toxicity and spawning no shortage of problems. Each game and their staff would deal with it, or not deal with it, in their own way, and I distinctly recall visiting the Han forums and finding it to be most unpleasant. What surprised me the most was that the company's own staff were just as bad as the players themselves begetting a nasty environment. With such a negative atmosphere, why would I ever want to buy a game like this? At least Riot Games made some kind of attempt to curb this behavior, even though they had unique problems of their own. Honestly to me, this comes off as unprofessional and there's just no excuse for it. Heroes of New Earth ended up going free to play over a phased transition from July 2011 onward. It remains active to this day, albeit after a developer transition. It seems to have a significantly smaller player base compared to the other games in the genre. I could never get into it other than having a brief curiosity during this time, opting for League of Legends and Dota 2 instead. I think experiencing the toxic staff members subconsciously played a part in my disinterest towards this game honestly, and that's unfortunate. Customer service. It works wonders. May 31st. No matter how much you study, you can still screw up an exam. I was still on campus subletting a gross little apartment room just for this financial accounting class, so I was hoping the time served would be worth it. Needless to say, I didn't do great in my first exam, despite putting a Herculean effort into studying. 
Most of my days were wake up, go to class, come back, stress over the homework, try to stay afloat with the readings, and study for the quizzes and exams, maybe with a few game breaks in between. I'm sure you've been here too, preparing for something in every possible manner, only to be taken down a peg regardless. The exam was pretty much about everything learned up to this point, including dividends, net income, expenses, revenues, the balance sheet, financial equations, income statements, debit, credit, and more. I guess I could have seen the warning signs, as I had taken the practice exam that was given out, only to get 20 out of 51 questions wrong. I'm not sure if I attempted to do this more than once, but I know that I spent a lot of time preparing otherwise. A lot of the questions were tricky in terms of terminology, and if you really weren't on your A-game, you were going to drown in these exams. There were also a few light balance sheet problems to solve in addition to the straight vocabulary-based questions. Multiple choice exams can be such a nightmare, and you can be gaslit by similar-looking answers and or become paranoid of how many times you think B is the correct answer in a row. Oh well, better luck next time. June 1st. None of the above usually has the lowest probability of being right. This advice came from the financial accounting professor. As to whether or not this is actually correct really truly depends on the exam that you are taking. At least on the first practice exam for this course, every question that had a none-of-the-above option never ended up being the correct response. In fact, the answer was only correct exactly one time across all of the practice exams I have on file for this class. My professor discussed how the cheap shot statement of the answer isn't on this page was a deceptive tactic. I do agree with this notion, However, I don't believe every exam out there is going to always adhere to such an honor code. Many years later, I would discover that Microsoft knows no mercy when it comes to using this answer in their certification exams. They often word questions and answers in very misleading and deceptive manners, requiring you to truly have an eye for detail and differentiation. As to whether or not you think this has a value in terms of either teaching you something or demonstrating you know something, I'll leave that up to you. At least for this class, it seems my professor knew that the course content was hard enough, and it wasn't worth tricking students any more than what was necessary. And you know what? I really respect that. June 2nd, Apple QMaster Setup, Distributed Processing. In these days, it was cool to be able to set it up using hardware within your reach. You may recall that in 2007, many universities would utilize entire fleets of PlayStation 3 units for the application Folding at Home, which is a research program utilizing any number of volunteer CPUs around the world to perform calculations which contribute to protein folding which can assist in finding treatments for diseases and cancers. At the time, the PlayStation 3's price-to-power ratio was favorable to the point where it could be purchased in bulk and harnessed for the distributed computing efforts. 
as opposed to using more expensive computer systems. Folding at home still exists today, and while the PlayStation 3 is now quite distant in the rearview mirror of computing prowess, the idea of distributed processing is still very much alive. Meanwhile, in the Apple world, a different kind of implementation for this concept was in play for video rendering, and it was known as Apple QMaster. According to the official manual, QMaster was included with every copy of Final Cut Studio and Shake. QMaster used apps like Compressor to monitor active jobs. As I mentioned previously, our new Mac Pro hardware had finally reached our offices at the TV station. A monumental jump in processing capability came with them, and we wanted to take advantage of this to reduce the time it took to wait for a video to export. While exporting on one of the new 6-core workstations was bound to be significantly faster on its own compared to the PowerPC G5 systems, why not instead configure a multi-system mega cluster and triple the capability? This was the promise that QMaster could make. Configuration of QMaster was relatively simple, as it was already included with a Final Cut installation. All one had to do was enroll each workstation in a cluster by going to the QMaster preference pane and configuring the sharing parameters. From there, you were good to export videos to Compressor and watch the magic happen. I recall it working well and was an overall time saver and a great learning experience in distributed processing. I'm sure this still exists today in some manner, even though QMaster appears to no longer exist as a dedicated named product anymore, you can still get Final Cut and Compressor in the Mac App Store, so surely the technology is still around under the hood. June 3rd. Lyme disease can be contracted from ticks and mosquitoes. Sometimes I learn something that seems really obvious in hindsight. This one is important, though. Borrelia burgdorferi is the main cause of Lyme disease and may be transmitted via black-legged ticks. Another bacteria, Borrelia maoni, has been observed that mosquitoes can carry it, albeit less frequently than deer ticks. Lyme disease definitely is not something you want, so do whatever you can to avoid tick bites, and always check yourself if you've been out in the wilderness. I'll leave it at that. Be safe. And for the final day of this week, June 4th, Steve Jobs is apparently called Wally. I am intrigued by this, and I wish I wrote down my source for this thing learned. I can't seem to find any evidence to this claim, and unless I can find the original video or article on this, I might have to mark this one as false. The name Wally was at least partially in Steve Jobs' orbit one way or another. Pixar Animation Studios, a company with Steve Jobs as a key VIP stakeholder, produced The Adventures of Andre and Wally B in 1984, and later on released the feature film Wally in 2008. Supposedly, Steve Jobs did not like the original spelling of Wally's title and main character, opting for a slight adjustment leading to the final version, omitting a few dots while adding another L. Secondarily, and albeit ironically, 
someone with the name of Wally Powell was involved in the 2013 biodrama Jobs within camera and electrical equipment. Steve Jobs was married to Lorraine Powell and was involved with the film Wally, so I guess in some kind of cosmic coincidence, it would be fitting to have a similarly named crew member working on a movie about the man. It seems the only evidence for a nickname for Jobs that I could find was in an Apple Insider forum post from 2007 with user T. Baggins discussing a rather profane nickname used for Jobs based on his tendencies to berate others. Oh, and here's another weird coincidence. He was replying to a user named Wally. I think I've gone far too deep into this rabbit hole. Of course, this nickname is unconfirmed, and I can't validate a forum post as fact. I can more confidently vouch for the consistent accounts that Jobs was a jerk to a lot of people, though. He often showed no shame in flaunting arrogant philosophies, even in official Apple presentations. Personally, I'm not a fan of that kind of proud hubris, but that's just me. Anyways, I guess this thing learned is largely a bust, or the original source has been lost to time. That being said, I guess it was still worth looking into, and finding the odd facts along the way just made it all the more intriguing. Besides, I challenge you to find another podcast that did such a deep dive into this. And we have reached the end of the things learned for this week. Now, time for a few extra topics. On May 29th, I made an account for what seems to be a mothballed app known as TagWhat. I found a promotional video explaining what it is, and the concept is not only really cool, but was far ahead of its time. TagWhat was basically an app that allowed users to submit little facts and data about places all around you, and you could move your phone around using the camera to see what you could discover. Google Glass wouldn't really become a thing until just a few years later, but if TagWhat had tag-teamed with it, maybe the products would have turned out just a little bit better. Nowadays, we're hearing about possible resurgences of this tech. Rumors of upcoming augmented reality headsets from Apple are all over the space at the moment. Personally, I think glasses or headgear are a much more sensible approach to AR. I'm really not a fan of randomly pointing my phone at random places in public. It projects a creepy vibe to bystanders, and it's awkward to hold a phone up for that long anyway. AR glasses would help, but there's still the privacy angle to be discussed as well, as AR glasses require cameras and two-way transmission of data for any of it to work well. It seems TagWhat is largely abandoned now, with their Facebook page last active in 2014, and their website listing a copyright date of 2017. The key promotional photo being an iPhone 4, with a screenshot of the app from the iOS 6 days, is enough to give away that this app is no longer under active development. As far as I can tell, the company has abandoned the product, and possibly gone under, for all I know. Funny enough, the app icon for TagWhat is very, very strangely similar to that of the icon for the Garmin Express utility on the desktop computer. Maybe it's coincidental, but interesting nonetheless. More on the subject of defunct websites. 
I made an account with an organization known as Ivy Lol on May 30th, promising to be a competitive, collegiate League of Legends network. I can't say Ivy Lol ever fully rose to glory. A very bare-bones site launched around this time, with a more complete version appearing months later. I never heard much from them outside of the initial hype and buzz. Ivy Lol would gain sponsorships and go through at least three seasons of play, albeit without my involvement, as I never received any contact from them. Their website appeared to slowly fade away after their late 2014 Season 4 announcement. The official subreddit was also set to private sometime after October 24th, 2014. Some of the final posts complained that the site was broken, and folks were questioning whether or not the organization was still active. It would also seem that one of the organizers was apologizing for being absent, so I can only surmise that the project's management fell apart. After discussing technical problems and match results, Ivy Lol's Twitter account would post for seemingly the final time on the 2nd of December, 2014. From the outside looking in, if I had to guess what happened, I think that this was a case of a competitive gaming group run by an underskilled or understaffed team that just caved under pressure. While they may have been able to keep the ship afloat for a few years, structural problems caught up to them in the end. On June 1st, I got an invite to Google Music Beta, which would eventually become Google Play Music. I touched upon this in an earlier episode, but it was still a really cool concept. Upload your personal music library to Google and stream it from any device that could talk to the service. Imagine just pulling up your music library via a web browser, on a work computer, or your phone, without having to fumble with a flash drive or file share. This was before music streaming services were huge aside from maybe Pandora, so it was more of a draw. It was only very recently when the service was shut down, replaced by YouTube Music, that of which I'm not a huge fan of for a multitude of reasons. We got many good years out of Google Play Music, though. May it rest in peace. Lastly, here's a real goofy one. In a stunning case of excess and what-were-they-thinking levels of self-indulgence and yo-dog memeability, around this time, Apple started replacing the physical price and detail tags for their products with full-sized iPad 2 models, which would display an interactive brochure for the product you were looking at. Even more stunningly, the actual iPad 2s on display would be accompanied by another iPad 2, right next to it, describing the iPad 2. It was confusing, dumb, and a waste of electricity, batteries, product, and table space. I feel that the liability of doubling the amount of electronics out on display probably wasn't great for security purposes either. Apple would eventually ditch this concept, either returning the analog paper-based tags to their rightful places, or integrating the information onto the kiosk unit itself. And that is about all I have for this week. We've made it to the month of June, finally. Thanks a lot for listening. If you are a new listener to Things Learned, I thank you for coming on board, and I hope you subscribe or follow this podcast. 
If you are a returning listener to Things Learned, I thank you for continuing to listen. This podcast is done entirely by me with the help of some royalty-free music. All credits are available in the show notes alongside any researcher links that I utilized to put together this week's show. If you have any feedback for this show or just want to drop a rating, please feel free to on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can rate podcasts. And as always, if you feel anyone would enjoy a show like this, feel free to let them know. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you next time.